once you're focused on mysticism, it doesn't really make sense to be all obsessed with whether it's Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Sufi or, you know, or Buddhist or whatever, because the assumption is it is an encounter of a human being with the reality, right? With the God, with the something, right? And so it makes sense that it would be similar and it, it would make sense that people would would gravitate even to mysticism as the place where you can find that similarity across the religions because they're not in the mystical moment they're not saying you have to participate in the catholic mass or you know you must uh you know recite the nicene creed or something like that that's not happening right N- neither are they saying like oh you know the buddhist four noble truths no it's this weird event that's occurring in your life that you're figuring out and explaining um with reference to whatever, whatever words you can come up with. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm very excited to have my guest on today. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Prothero. Thanks for having me. Um, we were just talking before we started recording, but I actually encountered your work back in um, probably like four or five years ago now when I was taking a grad school course on world religions, and they used your book, God is Not One. And I thought, uh, and, I, and I ended up reading several books uh, kind of on the, the, uh, the premise of like world religions, and I found your book to be the most accessible um, it just in a, you know, like a good breakdown, if you had no familiarity at all with anything outside of your particular religion. So I been a big fan for a while. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for reading it. Absolutely. So you have a new book out though, that we want to talk about called God, the bestseller, how one editor transformed American religion, a book at a time. Uh, talk a little bit about what led you to writing on this particular topic. Cause it kind of covers a certain individual. Well, I ran across an amazing archive of his personal and professional life just five minutes from my house on Cape Cod. I got a phone call from his daughter. Uh, She said, hey, you're a religion professor. Can you come by and look at a bunch of religion books at our house? And I really had no idea what that meant. And I was actually a little reticent to go because I didn't expect much. But when I finally got there, uh, I looked and I was surprised that a lot of the books were 20th century. I thought they'd be older. And the very first book I pulled off the shelf was Martin Luther King's Stride Toward Freedom, his first book about the Montgomery bus boycott. And I opened it up, and inside there was a letter from Coretta Scott King. It said uh, something like, Dear Eugene, you know, thank you so much for supporting Martin in his career as an author uh, and for your contributions to justice and peace, something like that. Wow. And, and I, I didn't even know the guy's name, and I'm like, Eugene, like, okay, what's your last name, you know? And then I went through more and more books, and, uh, you know, Eugene X-Men, I learned he had been a, a uh, religion editor at Harper, uh, Harper and Brothers, Harper and Row from 1928 to 1965, and King was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because you, you kind of get into this a little bit in the book, where, you know, oftentimes we don't really hear about the general public doesn't really hear about the editors or the, the, the the people behind the scenes that are helping support the author. So, you know, uh, you know, probably any other instance, we would have no idea his name would be buried in history. Um, So talk about his influence. One of the first things you talk about is um, this idea, how the world's religions became one. 
uh, which I found found was fascinating because that's actually something we talked about in my grad school class using your book as um, uh, you know one of the uh, little background in world religions. This idea that not all religions have kind of the same end goal, you know, and and um, and, and you talk a little bit about in the book and how that idea developed over time. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, this is one of the kind of uncanny things about finding this archive because I, I'm pretty well known as a, you know, anti-perennialist, you know, someone who thinks religions are really different. They start with different diagnoses of the human problem. They, they therefore have different solutions to the human problem, different, different religious goals. And if you want to take them seriously, you have to start with a foundation of difference rather than a foundation of similarity. And yet this archive of X-Men himself, but also so many of the books he published, including the most popular and widely read book on the unity of the world's religions, which is Houston Smith's The Religions of Man, later published as The World's Religions. This book makes that argument that the religions are different paths up the same mountain. That was published by, by X-Men and by, and by Harper uh, Religious Books Department. And so that idea is basically, you know, that, of course, there are different differences across the world's religions. Some are polytheistic, some are monotheistic, some uh, emphasize faith, some emphasize works, you know, um, some think Jesus was God, some think, don't think Jesus was God. Uh, but underlying all those, according to this perennialist idea, is some unity and then perennialists have different ideas of what that unity is. You know, some say it's, it's the divine. Some say it's the divine human encounter, which is different from the divine. Some say it's compassion or ethic, you know, some kind of ethics of love, something like that. Um, but X-Men's X-Men really had a huge influence on popularizing that idea, not only by publishing Houston Smith, but almost all his other authors were perennialists of a sort. And they, he was always pushing them, you know, don't just talk about your own religion, you know, talk about, talk about religion in general and, um, and write your books in a way that they can appeal not only to Catholics, if you're a Catholic, but also to Protestants and not only Protestants, but, you know, maybe to Buddhists or, or to Hindus. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you mentioned that I thought was, uh, kind of eye opening Cause I'm like, of course, you know, we, we view things through a particular lens. So, you know, I happen to grow up, as a white middle-class guy who happened to be born and raised in a Christian family. And that's just my upbringing. So that's the lens through which I view the world. And so you talk about the fact that, um, you know, a lot of that had to do with like this Protestant framework for what religion should be. And, and that's the way we kind of view other religions. I thought that was a really interesting uh, comment that you made. Yeah. And the framework is a little tricky because the framework is, well, what is the framework? I mean, uh, that the religion is to be found in its scripture, right? That, that, so therefore, you know, texts are important, but also beliefs are, beliefs are important. You know, I mean, Protestant, Protestants have traditionally been creedal, you know, I mean, there are some that don't recite creeds, of course. Um, and also, there is this Protestant idea that the main drama is kind of a human drama of sin 
and there is some kind of crisis that happens and that crisis is resolved by some sort of coming to God. You know, that's the sort of evangelical revivalist thing, but it's also biblical, of course, with Paul and, you know, um, and so, so all those things can lead to the false assumption that, oh, scripture is really important in every religion or every religion is about individual personal experience or, you know, whatever it might be. And so there was always a tension in the publishing house between X-Men and his non-Protestant authors about being broader, you know? And of course, like he didn't say it, but like be broader in a way that won't, that won't piss off the Protestants, you know, like be broader in a way that all the Protestants will come along, you know, like be broader in the way that assumes. And again, it isn't, the assumption isn't that Protestantism is the one true form of Christianity and Christianity is the one true religion. But it's more like when you're talking about religion, you're talking about X, Y, Z. And then when you fill in the X, Y, Z, you fill it in a, in a Protestant way. So one of the things I loved was there was a, there was a, uh, one of X-Men's assistants who I talk about in the book was working on this Catholic autobiography. She was basically ghostwriting it. And, and she said to this Catholic writer, do you really have to pray to the baby Jesus? Like, you know, Protestants don't do that. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to sell this book to Protestants if you pray to the baby Jesus. I would never tell you not to pray to the baby Jesus. You should pray however you want to pray, but just, you know, we want to reach a broader audience. And and part of the broader audience was about money, of course, because X-Men had to make money for Harper. But also it's about the mission. You know, if, if the, if you're not selling the books, you're not, people aren't reading the books, right? You want people to read the books and you want them to, to see the importance of religion, which is a huge part of the X-Men agenda in a world that had been beaten down by World War I and World War II, where so much of the optimism of the modern period had fallen aside. And the books he published were saying religion matters, religion is important, the way forward is individual relationship with the divine. And if if we have a collection of individuals who have this who see God, who, who, who follow God, they will do right in the world vis-a-vis, you know, peace and human brotherhood and things like that. And otherwise we're just going down the road to ruin with militarism and materialism in the, in the 20th century. That's so very interesting. A, a lot of the things that you point out about him seem, um, kind of second nature today, but seemed very ahead of his time. Um, you know, when he's, when he's publishing these things back, you know, decades ago, it, it's, it's very interesting. He seemed like a very, um, you know, forward thinking type of individual. Yeah, he really was. And, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't really an innovator. Like there's almost any idea that he's pushing, you can find other people who are pushing it, but he was a great co- convener. So he, he drew people into his orbit and they would become his friends and then they would often write books for him. And then they would bring in their friends who would then often uh, often write books for him. So he was a convener, but he was also a popularizer. And he, t- to be a popularizer, you have to sort of know, okay, what, what are the great thoughts or the great authors, the great ideas that, that we think Americans and other readers of English books need to know most broadly in order to make the world a better place? 
And then how do we translate those into language ordinary people can understand? And the main person he's trying to popularize, I think, uh, and this is the argument I make in the book, is William James. Uh, William James, the philosopher, psychologist from Harvard, publishes a book, Varieties of Religious Experience, in 1903. And he makes this argument, religion is essentially personal. Religion is essentially about feelings and experiences, not about uh, doctrine, not about uh, not about rituals. And the highest form of religion is the encounter, the mystical encounter between the individual and the divine. And there are techniques for that that we can learn by looking at experiences of mystics over the globe and over the and over the centuries. And that was very much X-Men's, those are very much X-Men's ideas. And he just gets those from James. But he then has people publish books like autobiographies and biographies and and collections of sermons even that are doing this in a way that isn't as nerdy as William James was doing it out of his, you know, Harvard, you know, uh, lecture halls. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, and the, the, the whole idea that he was into um, really interested in mysticism, uh, you know, that's something that's really kind of gaining traction now. It, it seems like it's, it's something that's becoming more and more popular. And yet uh, you mentioned that he put together a, a mystics club, you know, and I, I thought, that was one of the definite pieces where I thought that that's really well ahead of its time. Cause there's a lot of authors now who would be considered mystics like Richard Rohr and, and the like who um, are extremely popular. So it seems like that seemed very ahead of its time as well. Yeah. Ahead of its time. And also after its time, I mean, he's looking yeah. back to Catholic mystics, you know, there's plenty of these medieval Catholic mystics that he's really interested in. And he's, and, and he publishes, he publishes books, by mystics uh, for the, in these small inexpensive editions. He, he like, he's like, you know, read Teresa of Avila, you know, read St. John of the cross, you know, read these people. And, um, and you'll see that what they're describing is something that's available to people today. And, and, and I start the book with his own mystical experience that I think was very important in his professional life and in his personal life. And he was, 16, 17 year old kid going to Bible study one evening in his rural town to his Baptist church, to fundamentalist church. And he's riding his horse. And all of a sudden, right in front of the graveyard, not quite a mile away from the church, the horse just boom, just stops and kind of rears back and whinnies. And X-Men looks and he sees a big light he feels electricity coursing through uh, through his body, and according to his account, he sees God, and he becomes convinced in that moment that he will never doubt the existence of God again. And as I understand his life, that's what's motivating him throughout his professional career. He's going to find other people who had experiences like this, like Bill Wilson, for example, the founder of AA, whom he helps a lot with, with the development of AA's, AA's scriptures, basically. Um with people like Martin Luther King, who has a mystical experience, people like Howard Thurman, who on a trip to Asia has a mystical experience that leads him to found his interfaith interfaith uh, church out in San Francisco. Um, almost all his authors have this, and almost all reject the idea that mysticism is ex- escapist. They think it launches you back into the world uh, to work for uh, peace and, and brotherhood, and it isn't a kind of excuse for individual selfish withdrawal. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I've I've found, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but um, I found that when studying mystics, you know, mysticism occurs in other religions as well, other traditions. Uh, there's Jewish mystics, uh, you know, um, all sort, you know, all types and all all different uh, traditions. But they seem like they're all sort of speaking the same language. You know, there's some sort of connective tissue there that that doesn't exist um, outside of mysticism. It seems. Yes, there's a huge, um, huge debate about that in religious studies, of course. And one of the skeptics about that is my colleague, uh, Stephen Katz at Boston University, who sort of famously, gosh, when was this in the 70s or something? He, he made this argument that even mysticism is cultural and historical. But, but that was not Exman's view. And that was not the view of his friends. And I think if you if you think about it, like, if there's a God, and if there's some way that humans can encounter God in outside of, uh, you know, ordinary structures of religious buildings and religious institutions, you know, like by surprise, let's say that there's some way that humans can encounter God by surprise. Uh, then when that encounter happens, it's hard to describe, right? Because you've never had one before, like, because it's different. It's not like, this is assuming, you know, like in the Mormon tradition, there is this idea that God can just kind of walk up to you, you know, and there is that view also in Christianity, right? With the incarnational, you know, uh, Christ idea. But, but for the most part, Christians have not affirmed that, you know, Jesus walks into, you know, physically is walking into their house and giving them a mystical experience. It's usually, it usually seems to be disembodied. And so it makes sense two things make sense. One is that it's hard to describe and, and that they're going to be fumbling around for words and they're going to be going after like negative language, you know, like not, it, it wasn't really this, it wasn't really that. Um, it's ineffable, all that kind of stuff. But then also once you're focused on mysticism, it doesn't really make sense to be all obsessed with whether it's Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Sufi or, you know, or Buddhist or whatever, because the assumption is, it is an encounter of a human being with the reality, right? With the God, with the something, right? And so it makes sense that it would be similar. And it, it would make sense that people would would gravitate even to mysticism as the place where you can find that similarity across the religions. Because they're not, in the mystical moment, they're not saying you have to participate in the Catholic Mass or, you know, you must, uh, you know, recite the Nicene Creed or something like that. That's not happening, right? N- neither are they saying like, oh, you know, the Buddhist Four Noble Truths. No, it's this weird event that's occurring in your life that you're figuring out and explaining um, uh, with reference to, you know, whatever, whatever words you can come up with. Yeah, it seems it seems as if it's it's an ex, uh, an experience, as you said, a personal experience that sort of transcends um, the, the the human creation of these structures around our our individual uh, faiths. You know, it, it seems like it's beyond something beyond, and it's also critical of those structures, right? Yeah, like, you know, famously, like you know, I mean, uh, Sufi Sufi mystics in Islam, you know, they're they're going to say some pretty radical things, like. Like, you know, we don't care about the five pillars of Islam. You know, we don't really care about, about, uh, you know, the Quran, you know, uh, whoa. I mean, that's, that's pretty serious stuff in, in the Islamic tradition. And it got a lot of Sufi mystics in trouble, but, but we see that across all these traditions that it's sort of anti-institutional. And, and this is something that 
plays out with X-Men and is playing out today in the United States that, that the sort of mistrust of religious institutions, the greater trust for spirituality, spiritual experience, uh, you know, individual sorts of activities rather than collective, you know, religious activities, mistrust of the word religion, mistrust of the word church, you know, um, all that stuff is sympathetic with the mystical impulse and certainly sympathetic with what X-Men was trying to do with his publishing career. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. It certainly seems that X-Men very much, maybe without realizing, kind of led us back to more of a balance between the experiential uh, piece of, of, uh, uh, you know, your spiritual tradition and sort of the uh, scriptural side of things. Because for a long time, it seems like, at least within Western Christianity specifically, uh, it's very heavily based on, you know, the memorizing of passages and very heavily, heavily based on the Bible. And it sort of seemed like it drew away from the, the personal experience piece of it. And there's that tension in Protestantism that goes so far back, right? Because you have, yes, you have, you have the call in early, you know, in the Protestant Reformation, like back to scripture, sola scriptura and all that kind of stuff. But then you have in the revivals, you know, in the United States, the first great awakening in 1740s and the second great awakening, 1830s, 1840s, Pentecostal revival of the first decade of the 20th century, Azusa Street revival. You know, that's all about experience, right? It's like there's an experience available to you, you know, and then it gets institutionalized with the altar call. But, but, but what's going on there? Like people aren't going up and being given a quiz about 10 important Christian questions. And when they get it right, they're saved, right? That's not what's happening, right? They're falling down, they're shrieking, you know, they're, sometimes their heart can be, you know, strangely and quietly moved. That's also another possibility. But so that experiential piece um, is definitely there. And, you know, when X-Men would be on retreats and people would start to argue, you know, theology, this was the key thing for him. Like, no theology. Can we just stop? Like, no more theology. And he would, and he would really say, why are we here? You know, we're here to try to see God. We're here to try to get closer to God. Let's help each other with that. You know, let's like, how do you do, like, how do you meditate? How do you pray? How do you, you know, is does silence work for you? Um, let's not talk about incarnational theology, you know, Trinitarian, blah, blah, blah. Like, what does that do? That, that doesn't help the world. It doesn't help oh, what we're trying to do here. And he was very big on that early on um, with his publishing, too, because when he came into the publishing business, a lot of publishing in, in, on religion, which was really being revived in New York in the 20s and the early 30s when he started, was about theology. It would be like a Christian theologian, Protestant theologian usually, or a minister uh, publishing sermons or, you know, stuff like that. And, and it was Lutheran book, Lutheran writer, Lutheran minister would publish to Lutherans and sell it in a Lutheran bookstore. You know, Baptist minister would publish for Baptists and sell it in a Baptist bookstore. And, and, and Exmo was always like, let's do this broader. You know, let's, fine, we can have a Baptist minister. But let's not use all the Baptist words. Let, let, let's talk about, let's talk more broadly about, and, and, and what should we talk about? Talk about your experience. Don't talk about Baptist theology and how you disagree with, you know, somebody on, you know, predestination or you disagree with somebody on, you know, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism. No, don't stop. Don't do that. You know, like, let's talk about what happens to us when we encounter God. That's what, that's what, that's what we're here for. I love that. That, that, and, and talk about that a little bit, because you kind of touched on it earlier, um, and, and you mentioned this in the book, um, just 
all of the kind of background uh stuff that was happening in in order to even publish a book. And as an author yourself, I mean, this still goes on today. You know, you have an editor and a publisher and they have certain ways in which they feel your book should look and, and present itself. And of course you as the creative individual who's, you know, doing the research and doing the writing have, you know, an, an idea I, I would imagine in your mind of how you wish this book to, uh, to look and be perceived. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so writing a book is a really collaborative exercise. I think it's useful to think about it, to think, I mean, and we, and, and we, we tend not to think that, right? We tend to think the author's sitting alone with a pen or a pencil or a computer in some cubicle and or off on their own in a, a cool, like, writing shack behind their house, you know? Um, and and that's, that's all it is. It's like one person. But, of course, you're drawing on other authors as you write, and then you're collaborating with your editor, and you you're collaborating potentially with your publisher. There's marketing and publicity people who sometimes help shape the book, certainly help try to sell the book. Um, and it's interesting because X-Men was a super collaborative person. He was always trying to sort of bring in other people to get involved with things. You know, he, he established this, this commune in Southern California, sort of interfaith commune in the forties that ran for most of the forties. And that was a collaborative enterprise with Aldous Huxley, the British, the British author of mm-hmm. Brave New World, and who was very interested in in Hinduism, and, and wrote the classic book, The Perennial Philosophy: The God Is Not That God Is Not One. Um, sorry, God Is One, <laughs> kind of uh, kind of book. And and so when he was working with his authors, it was also it was also collaborative. You know, he'd push them in one direction, but also many of his authors didn't really write that much. I mean, a lot of them were writers, like Harry Emerson Fosdick, who became the important, maybe the most famous pastor of in the 20th century in the United States until G- Billy Graham and, and Martin Luther King. Um, he was at Riverside Church, that sort of famous liberal Protestant church in Manhattan. And, and he, uh, <laughs> I mean, his stuff was very much uh, collaborative with, with X-Men, but he really wrote his own, his own things, you know, but then there were other, other X-Men books where he'd just find an interesting person with interesting ideas and sit them down with basically a ghostwriter who would write the whole thing. And, and there were, there were, there were some letters like where one of his X-Men's assistants would write and say, this author has given me four sentences. (laughs) That's all four sentences. So in that case, it's clearly not the author that's, you know, that's, uh, that's doing it. But I think, you know, it was really, really fun to see all these letters where there's back and forth where X-Men is writing to people and and saying to Dorothy Day, for example, you know, the Catholic, you know, activist, maybe soon to be Catholic saint, by the way, she's going through all the hoops for Catholic sainthood. Oh, wow. Um, found, founder of the Catholic Worker. She she writes two beautiful autobiographies for, for X-Men and and there's this back and forth about, okay, you need to write for a broader audience. You need to be mindful of Protestant readers. You need to be mindful of secular readers. Um, and when we're publishing your book in the catalog, it never even says she's a Catholic. It's not like they hid it, but, but they called her the St. Francis of the Streets. Of course, St. Francis is kind of Catholic-y, but St. Francis was the most popular Catholic saint among Protestants at the time that they were trying to market that, trying to market that book. So 
so yeah, really interesting collaborations and really interesting, you know, interesting to see the markups of the books, um, where X-Men crosses words out and, and things like that. And, and just the directions he's, he's pushing his authors and the way they push back, you know, it's not, you know, I, I talk about how Martin Luther King pushes back against efforts to sort of tone down his, his radicalism and make him sound more just sort of comfortably uh, liberal. And he, and he, you know, gives in, in some places and he pushed back, he's pushes back in other places. And Dorothy Day does the same thing. Yeah. That, I found that to be very interesting. I, I guess I didn't realize uh, some of the assumptions that people had made about uh, Martin Luther King's uh, writings and, um, and just the relationship with that push pull, um, you know, with, with X-Men in terms of, you know, what he wanted to, to, to speak about in his books and, and ultimately, you know, what he gave into and what he didn't, you know, what he thought was important to take a stand on, you know, in a sense. Yeah. And the big thing there was a sort of contest between the white liberal impulse that X-Men and many people at Harper had of, of, you know, we should just get along, you know, let's all get along. Um, you know, white people and black people are basically the same. And, 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 you know, it, it should all be a kind of kumbaya thing. And Martin Luther King is in the middle of, you know, leading the civil rights movement. And he's interested in, you know, voting rights. He's interested in transforming the United States and transforming American culture. So it's less racist and more just. And you have to, you have to, you know, push for that. You can't just, you know, you can't just get a bunch of people in a room and have everybody decide it's okay. So, so there were notes that would be like an end, you know, uh, for his first book, you know, an end on a, on a kind of crescendo of peace and brotherhood, you know, and King to his credit, you know, he ends stride toward freedom on this prophetic crescendo that God is a God of justice and peace. And if we don't work to create a kingdom of justice and peace, then we can't expect God to be on our side and we can't expect anything other than, than ruin for the United States. So very, very different kind of, uh, kind of ending there. Yeah, that, that's very, very interesting. Um, so, so along those lines, talk about, you know, again, Axman, again, over and over again, there are examples that you give in the book of just um, sort of how progressive he was, it seemed for, for that day and age. And, um, one of the things that he seems to have kind of pushed along is, um, you know, uh, this idea that, um, diversity is good, you know, uh, even, even in the most, as you put it, intimate, uh, arena of spirituality and religion, uh, talk about, you know, his impact on that. Yeah, I think the idea of diversity is good, you know, religious pluralism, as it's sometimes called, was really pretty simple for him. I think because of that mystical experience he had as a teenager, because he responded to it by wanting to learn more about it, because he didn't understand it, and by wanting to make it happen again, he was just really widely curious about how other people had similar encounters. And he didn't care whether they were having him in a Protestant way or a Catholic way or a Jewish way or a Hindu way or a Buddhist way. And in fact, he thought that the broader his conversations partners were about that, the more he could learn. 
that he could borrow Buddhist meditation techniques, that he could borrow from Catholics strategies about silence, that he could borrow from, you know, Protestant theologians, you know, strategies about close reading of books, which, by the way, was one of his spiritual practices, which is interesting for, for an editor that he believed that you could closely read a book with a pencil in hand or a pen or highlighter, whatever, and uh, something could happen, you know, something could happen in that. And especially if you were doing it in conversation. He had a Monday night group that met in Manhattan for, I believe, over 20 years. And they would meet every Monday night for three hours. And they would share a meal. They would share silent, silent meditation of some sort. And they would talk about a book. And that's where he really thought his spiritual life blossomed. It wasn't by going to church, which, by the way, he did every single Sunday, and he kept the programs, and they're in this archive that I you know, that I found and I worked through. Um, so he, he was not spiritual but not religious. He was spiritual and religious. Um, but he just thought that there was something to be learned from every religious, and I, I'm about to say every religious tradition, but he didn't really care that much about the traditions. He cared more about the people. Like There was something to be learned from the Hindu swamis he met out in California when he was working on that commune. There was something to be met to be learned from D.T. Suzuki, whom he published on Zen uh, Buddhism. There was something to be learned from Martin Buber and Abram Heschel, the Jewish uh, writers, uh, you know, from reading their, from reading their work. Yeah, I, I, I love that uh, about him because um, I, I found that in my own personal journey, um, the more I've kind of studied other religions and um, learned more about them, uh, the more beauty I've seen in my own tradition, I think, and and outside of it. And it all seems to me like it's, um, we're all sort of puzzle pieces that when collected together form sort of this beautiful mosaic, you know, but we all have something you know, worth, worth sharing, you know, I think that's right. And, you know, for me, an analogy there is languages, you know, mm. when you, you know, I don't speak a lot of languages, but, but when you see the way something can be expressed in another language that you can't actually say in English, it's really cool because, because you just realize that the intimate connection between language and thought and language and feeling and similarly with religions, you know, I think there is the assumption that, Religion is, is what you know, right? So, you know, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, right? So religion for me was, you know, Sunday. It was a lot of like down on your knees, up on your feet, sitting on the chair, like moving around you know, with those different, different prayer postures. Uh, it was sitting back and trying to pay attention when you're kind of a jittery kid, trying to pay attention to a sermon. Um, but, you know, you go, to a, you go to a Greek Orthodox church, what's happening? Everybody's standing up. They don't have pews. Right. So that's really interesting. Like, oh, we're in a religion We're in our religion. We sit, you know, we don't we don't just stand. And and you can think that's silly. But then then you can look at the prayer posture. Like, what's the prayer posture of like an evangelical Christian? Like, it's kind of just sitting however you feel like in a chair. Right. But what's the prayer posture for a Muslim? You know, it or a Tibetan Buddhist, it includes being fully prostrated um, with your forehead on the ground. And that's, that's really, really interesting. Like what, what's going on there with 
the relationship between the human and the divine when there's like a full body, full body, you know, prostration. So I, I totally agree with you. And this is, for me, this is why I keep studying world religions because I just keep being endlessly fascinated by the different ways people can do things and the ways that those things, um, you know, fill out our, our, our understanding of the human, ex- human experience, you know, um, how you, you know, how you deal with a, a dead body, you know, like there's not just one way to do that. You know, there's, there's, yes, you can send it to an embalmer and you can put it in a casket and you can bury it, you know, but, um, but you can also, you can also cremate it and then you can scatter the ashes and you can, and, and there's different rituals associated with all those things. And there's different understandings of what the human person is and different understandings of what the divine is. Um, and I just, I don't know, at least for me, I'm, yeah, I'm in team, you know, fascinated by that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, you, you made me think of two things. Um, one experience I had where I went and visited uh, a Hindu temple for the first time and, and, um, uh, thought I had thought I had uh, offended someone when I walked in, but I think it was just because um, I was the tallest, palest guy there, and was sitting in the back taking notes. And they're like, "Who is this guy?" But uh, could not have been more welcoming. And what was interesting to me about it is when I was introduced uh, by one of the women there to her husband, who happened to be the temple priest. Um, he gave me a snack. First of all, I got some mandarin orange slices and thought it was part of a ceremony that I wasn't aware of. Uh, so I was panicked for a moment. <laughs> But, um, but what's interesting is just the, the difference in approach. Had that been in, you know, like a modern, uh, Christian church and they had come in to visit, you know, this church more than likely we're throwing all sorts of, uh, you know, welcome packages at them and trying to convert them over and trying to get them to come back the next week. And that did not happen to me, which was the first thing I noticed. But what was, uh, offered to me was, you know, if, you're interested in coming back, you know, uh, what we do is when we have our service, we bring offerings of food. And then when we're done, we have this giant communal feast. And I thought, I love Indian food. I'm there, you know, <laughs> like this sounds great. But, um, Axman seems to have realized the importance of the communal aspect as well. And, and that really is, you know, breaking bread with your neighbor really is the thing that kind of unites us together. Yeah, and I, I think one interesting thing about him was that he really homed in on like six to twelve, like six to twelve people, and he just thought church was too big. Mm. Um, he has a funny line in one of his letters where he says, "You know," he, and he he was a real uh, volunteer, you know. So he was on the boards. He was on the board of his college. He went to as an undergrad, Denison College. He was he was on the board at Harper, Harper and Harper and and brothers and which became Harper and Row. He was on the board at his church at a Riverside church in Manhattan. And he had this funny description where he said, you know, if you've been to a Harper and row board meeting and you've been to a Riverside church board meeting, same thing, no difference. Some <laughs> of the same people, <laughs> yeah, you know, the same agenda, the <laughs> same debates, you know, there really isn't a lot of God going on in either of those places, you know, even though one is supposedly, you know, supposedly a church. But you get six people in a room together, you get 10 people in a room together, you carve out space, you know, and back then there were no cell phones, you know, but that would have gone without saying, get rid of your, get rid of your cell phone. You carve out space, you allow for silence. That's really important for him because 
how can you hear God? How can God speak if you're just, if you're jabbering all the time? There's, there's no room for God to get into the conversation. So make room for silence. Listen to each other because that's why you're there. You know, the whole, the whole premise is you don't have it all together. Like you need other people to say, oh, okay, you're having this difficulty. Then why don't you try this? You know, you can't do silence for an hour because it makes you anxious. Well, just try silence for two minutes and, and, and see what that does. See what that does for you. You know, so that sort of close community of relatively small, um, he sort of thought that was the, that was a secret sauce. And at least at, for him, at least that, that worked. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's something I, I feel like society at large is still learning today. I mean, there's, there's all these uh, advertisements now for, um, you know, books and podcasts and things that deal in uh, mindfulness and being present. And, um, and as technology advances and there's more and more noise around us, it's, we're almost having to, uh, to offer that sort of thing where we're like, we need to be intentional about quieting all this distraction around us. Cause I could easily sit here and watch, you know, TikTok videos for endless amounts of time. And before I realize it, you know, I've just been doing that for hours. And so it almost seems like people are starting to, starting to realize that we're moving away from community. We're moving away from uh, taking time, as you said, to sit in silence and be present and mindful and, and listen and but so but it, it really does feel like there's sort of a move towards that right now. Yeah, I hope so. And and you know, reading is implicated in this too, right? Because if you can't if you can't sit down and give some sustained attention to a book um, or to reading words, you're not gonna you're not gonna read a book. You're not gonna buy a book. You're not gonna discuss a book with someone because you haven't read it. So, so, you know, meditation and reading and conversation are not really that far apart from one another, nor, nor is sitting in the presence of God, sitting and waiting for some kind of leading from God that different from those other, those other three things. And I I think that's, that's the way X-Men, that's the way X-Men saw it. Yeah, I love that. Um, Really interesting, and, and I'm I'm so glad that you uh, were able to get into these these archives and discover all of these things that uh, this kind of um, otherwise uh, again lost to sort of history uh, individual all all of this impact that he had that you know most people probably aren't aware of. Um, so what is what is kind of your hope for this book as as people read it? That's a good question. You know, I just felt. I, I just felt I had to write this book. I, I've never really felt it before. I just sort of thought this archive fell into my lap. It felt really coincidental. If I was, if I believed in Providence more, I would have felt very <laughs> providentially led to write this book. So I just felt like I kind of had to write. It kind of felt like a, a, an obligation to me in a good sense, like in a good sense, like this is, here's something I should do. I should do this. And also I really like, I really love archives. And my first couple book projects were archival projects. And I had kind of gotten away from, from archives in my career. And so I really enjoyed just, you know, going over to X-Men's house because his son-in-law set me up in his dining room and he'd haul boxes out of the barn and I'd sit down and go through them for days, days at a time. And, 
I just loved sort of piecing together this guy's life and what really made him tick. Um, what influences did he have on his authors? What influences did he have on American religious history? And I just found him to be a fascinating person who had a really interesting spiritual journey of his own that took him in a lot of different intriguing directions, took him to Africa to meet Albert Schweitzer, the Nobel prize winner. I uh, took him to Montgomery, Alabama to meet Martin Luther King, another Nobel uh, peace prize winner. I uh, took him to India to meet a guru. I uh, took him to Southern California to meet uh, Hindus there. And so he just had a fascinating life and a lot of, a lot of influence on, on the culture. And so I just hope, I hope people read the book and I hope that they uh, see the ways in which their own experiences are somehow shaped by these books that he helped to shape, you know, hundred years ago or 75 years ago. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. This is a fascinating book, fascinating individual, um, wonderful tribute to, uh, to this man. So, uh, well-written, um, so again, thank you for coming on and, and spending a little bit of your day to talk about uh, this book. And um, again, thrilled to have you on because God is not one is still one of my favorite reads. So appreciate that. <laughs> thanks, John. And thanks for your attention to the book. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Different. Sometimes I wonder if You'd love me more before I changed Sometimes I wonder if things should be different Sometimes I wonder if you'd love me more if I just stayed the same